Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Bill Broder was once the largest foreign investor in Russia. But as he began to investigate and soon uncover a $230 million tax fraud scheme, well, he became problematic for Vladimir Putin's regime. Here's what he told me in 2018. The fact of the matter is that Vladimir Putin really, really hates me. He hates me really a lot for one specific reason, which is that after the Russian government murdered my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uh, after he uncovered this massive government corruption scheme, I went on a crusade to get justice for mm-hmm. Sergey, and my crusade led me to Washington. Now, Bill Browder returns to talk about his new book. It's called Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. The focus is on his journey to advocating for sanctions against human rights violators. I'll speak to him a little bit later in the program. And speaking of books, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. Well, it features stories of union organizers and how they got started in the movement. All that's just ahead. But we'll begin with this. Georgia House Democrats want to bring attention to what they say are recorded statements from Governor Brian Kemp, where he shared his openness to banning contraception in Georgia if reelected. Kemp was trending nationally on Twitter last week after the recording surfaced. When asked if he has the power to ban Plan B, that's an emergency contraception also known as the morning after pill, Kemp said it's possible, but it depends on, quote, where the legislators are, close quote. Kemp's office told local Channel 11 station the audio was recorded at a recent University of Georgia tailgate and confirmed it was the governor speaking. Now, Kemp's office did not respond to WABE's request for comment at this hour regarding that press, regarding that comment, excuse me. The head of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation says this agency will probe any claims of election fraud that are deemed valid. Michael Register started as director of the GBI this month, and state lawmakers last session gave the Bureau the power to begin election investigations without being asked by another agency. Here's what he said. If a complaint comes, uh, you know, to the GBI, certainly we are going to look at each complaint on its merit and, and look at the validity of the complaint. And if it's something that we think that uh, needs investigating and that is within our privy and jurisdiction, uh, of course, we'll, we'll do that. And there's more with that interview at WABE.com. A new state law requires every local school board in Georgia to adopt conduct rules for board meetings. The Cobb County School Board approved its new policy last week. Now, Cobb Superintendent Chris Ragsdale said serious disruptions could result in meetings being postponed or moved to a different location. It's not focused on school resource officers removing people from the room. It's more focused on being able to continue the meeting uninterrupted, but still having public access to the meeting. The Cobb board had adjourned, then restarted a recent meeting due to disruptions. Jennifer Susco, a former Cobb County school counselor, told board members they could avoid disruptions by responding to messages from their constituents. Most of us would rather not be here all the time disrupting. For me, it's missing Gray's Anatomy, but we have no choice since it's the only way to be heard. I'll look forward to the adjustments in all of our behavior. The board approved the new conduct policy in a six to one vote. For decades, the Atlanta-based Scarlet Center has worked in developing countries to ensure democratic elections. As Jim Burrs reports, a new initiative will put some of those concepts to work right here at home. Candidate principles for trusted elections is what the Carter Center is calling the new bipartisan initiative. 
It encourages candidates, political parties, and voters to protect democratic elections through integrity, nonviolence, security, oversight, and the peaceful transfer of power. Avery Davis-Roberts leads U.S. election work for the Carter Center. We are not going to be sort of acting as some sort of candidate principles police, um, but we do encourage voters and constituents and the media to follow up with the candidates that endorse the candidate principles to hold them accountable, to ask them questions. The Carter Center's focus for the midterms is on Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, and Michigan. But she says the initiative is open to candidates and voters in any state. Jim Burris, WABE News. And finally, the Atlanta Braves will take a slight detour from their schedule later this month as the team is expected to be guest of the White House on September 26 to celebrate the 2021 World Series Championship. Now, the honor in the White House's East Room comes just before this year's regular season wraps up and the playoffs begin. The president often hosts major league and some college sports champions at the White House. By the way, in case you're wondering, this tradition of sports teams getting a White House recognition began actually in 1865 when President Andrew Johnson welcomed the Brooklyn Atlantics and the Washington Nationals. They were two amateur baseball teams. In, just in case you're on Jeopardy, I don't know. Speaking of the Braves, they're set to begin a three-game series tonight in Atlanta against Washington. Now, why is this important? Well, the Nationals, they're the worst team in baseball. And since the Braves are just one game behind the New York Mets for first place in the National League East, well, y'all know the rest. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Well, it was going to be a disaster. That is, if no deal, tentative at least, was reached between railroad labor unions and companies. Now, the Biden administration is touting their ability to secure a tentative agreement, which prevented a railway strike last week, as a win. However, it doesn't totally fix all the issues, and the agreement still needs to be ratified. Meanwhile, workers will not strike while votes are tallied over the next several weeks. There's a little history regarding unions. The year is actually 1866. The National Labor Union becomes the first organization acting as a coalition to embody American unions. So basically, it was the first attempt to create a national labor group here in the United States. And of course, since then, we know that labor unions, well, they've been key in terms of allowing workers the power to negotiate for more favorable work environments and various other benefits through collective bargaining. Now, recently on Closer Look, we talked about past and present day labor movements with Erica Smiley. She's one of the co-authors of a new book, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. And the book also features stories of union organizers and how they all got started in the movement, including that of Sancioni Butler. Ms. Butler, I'd like to start with you because in the, the chapter that details your work and it reads, I'm going to quote it here, it reads, quote, I realized then that I had a calling in my life and serious work to do that would involve fighting for people who were disenfranchised, poor and of color, and I knew it would be dangerous work, close quote. And I want you to tell our listeners, I want you to make that connection between that moment and how it involves Dr. King. Yeah, uh, just being out in the field, especially in the South, the, the word union is, people fear that word. And so being able to reflect that day at the Lorraine Motel and looking at all the exhibits and just realizing how deep the civil rights movement was and that Dr. King gave his life, he sacrificed his life 
coming to Memphis for workers who were the sanitized, the mm -hmm. sanitation workers who had the campaign, I am a man. Mm -hmm. So being out in the field and, and looking at workers of color, especially women being exploited, low wages, uh, having children, having to force to, you know, work unscheduled overtime, not being allowed to use the phone to try to get an alternative to get somebody to pick up their children or having their children left at home uh, for long hours. It just really brought those two worlds for me together about even if it was during the movement mm -hmm. then versus the struggle of the workers that they're facing today, it's still one of the same. Can you recall for our listeners that first job you had that you really, and you talk about this in terms of having to fight, having to fight to even take a test to get a different position at the auto plant. Can you take, set the, the environment for our listeners so they know your history here, that first job? Yes, it was a Ford Motor Company at the Dallas Parts Distribution Center. And so I was initially hired to be a, a parts picker where we service the local dealerships and uh, advanced auto parts, the parts stores. Mm -hmm. And the, the wages that we started out, they weren't bad wages, but it was an environment that there were not a lot of women. It was white male dominated. And being able to see the, uh, the maintenance program, they had an apprenticeship program and me having to fight to even get my name on the list to even try to get in the program and all of the you know, me talking to the uh, the maintenance manager, the union reps, trying to get someone to help me get my name on the list mm -hmm. as a woman and getting people, people saying, you know, now, now, that's really not a woman's job. And, wow. you know, we could probably find something easier over in this department. And so just that whole, it's not really a woman's job. Mm -hmm. That, that in itself just kind of was like, I was livid. And I was I, I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to take this test no matter what. But them not wanting to give me the books to study for the test, having to go out on my own and make those purchases so that I can have the material to even have a shot at even trying to pass the test. And I'm going to get to Eric in a moment, but Ms. Butler, I want to stay with you because then as you, during that moment, you're fighting for equality and then later as you become active in the labor movement I imagine you probably heard the same some similar stories either from women or people of color about similar discriminatory whether intentional or not because I know that's a whole nother subject issues that folks were facing this was not lost on you their experiences that they told you absolutely absolutely it wasn't lost and so it's again it's the same fight mm -hmm. Even though it's a different decade, the fight is still the same. Erica, as you and your co-author are compiling these stories and you're doing your research, how often was the motivation for these organizers like Ms. Butler, how often were you hearing this, this sort of common thread about what, why they were passionate about this and why they were doing this type of work? Oh, it was really consistent, Rose. And um, I've had the honor and privilege of getting to work with Sancioni in some of these, um, in some of her later campaigns and seeing her uh, in action and just so much gratitude that she shared her time and her story with us in this book. But here's the thing, right? So one of the things that we, we push out is that, you know, we can't win um, organizing collective bargaining power without centering the fights against white supremacy and gender discrimination. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Sancioni's story, there was a, a part of her story where she talked about the victory of winning a bathroom, like mm -hmm. a women's bathroom. Mm -hmm. And that, that was, I think you said it kind of uh, flippantly, you were like, you know, that was our women's liberation movement. And I was cracking up because um, here we are in a movement now or in a moment now where you've got um, the Me Too movement, you've got Black Lives Matter. And just as much as these movements are about gender and race, uh, the base of these movements are workers. And mm -hmm. where they're fighting for these things in many instances isn't just in society and in their communities, but uh, at their work sites. There was uh, one of the workers at the Bessemer plant in uh, Alabama 
who was fighting for Amazon, Big Mike, you know, he even said in a speech, this is our Black Lives Matter movement. They were mm-hmm. motivated by uh, the murder of George Floyd. And and even when you look at the fact that the uh, arrest of, of leaders in the Staten Island plant and how that led to the first union victory, you know, mm-hmm. at, at Amazon, the first union election, that if as a society and as a movement, we ignore these motivating factors, we will continue to lose. Erica, I want to stay with you for a moment. You and, and you you and your co-author, your, Sarita, you all have experience. Not like you were just authors looking for something to write. This right. is at the core of what you all have been doing for a long time. Why this book now and why in the way that you present it to the reader with the stories of folks like Sangioni? Yeah, no, thanks for that. So, you know, we, that's right. So Sarita was the former director of jobs with justice. I am the, the current director of jobs with justice, which is a, a national network of community labor coalitions that seek to expand organizing and collective bargaining power. And there's a, there's a, so what to this, which we have to keep reminding people. It's not just this idea of, of union rights. That's part of it. But, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. You don't just go door to door and say, Hey, you have the the right to elect a senator. You say you have the you should have the ability to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and likewise, um, when it comes to, to forming unions, regular everyday people should have the ability to organize and collectively negotiate their conditions. And and that that actually is the foundation of democracy. And so there's a there's a little bit of this this question of so what, right? Like why now? In that um, uh, if we look back, you mentioned 1866 at the beginning of the mm-hmm. problem. Uh, beginning of the program, if we look back to that time period uh, post the Civil War, the great radical reconstruction, the 1870s, right? Like, I think that that was one of the last times as a country we were pointed in the direction of trying to build a multiracial democracy, albeit imperfect, but where we were trying to integrate population of formerly enslaved Black people, my mm-hmm. ancestors, into a dem- democratic society. And when you look at the constitutional amendments that happened around that time. You've got the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and forced labor, the 14th, which started to define citizenship, the 15th, which started to define who could vote. Our movements have been trying to expand on those for the last 150 years or more, and and our opposition has been trying to roll them back, even to pre-Civil War interpretations. And so part of the so what for organizing collective bargaining power is that in this moment where the overwhelming majority of, of people recognize a crisis in our democracy, mm-hmm. that the only way to repair it or even perhaps build it anew is to include the economic relationships that also need to be democratized, whether it's employment or, or other ones. Eric, I want to I want to touch on that for a moment because you mentioned obviously post-Civil War. And, and Ms. Butler, when you think about labor organizing in the South and then how it's done in the North and the challenges and the barriers there are some similarities, but there are also some stark differences. As someone working, organizing, working in the South here, racism, I and, and I'm not to say that there wasn't racism of North, but I'm curious to get your take on the challenges as it relates to race, trying to be an organizer here in the South, just within the labor movement. And did you experience that? Absolutely. Uh, the, the challenge is, it's, it's, a, it's a stigma. Southern people think and were brought up in a way, Northern people, I think, had a little bit more uh, freedom, flexibilities, per se. And when a person from the North comes to the South to organize, my my message to that person is, you're going to have to de-roll and put yourself in the worker's shoes who they don't have a voice or say they're just at the mercy of the company. Mm-hmm. And so they, Southern people know when you have this persnickety attitude and looking down on them. So I think the key to more victories in the South is to ensure that you have Southern folks who have the Southern twang that can relate to those workers to where they don't feel Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I feel like uh, I'm intimidated a little bit by them. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a part of the key to having some, some successes in this in this area. Ms. Bell, are we seeing though more women becoming involved as as leaders, as activists in the labor movement? Are you seeing that? Oh yeah, I was I was very surprised. I had more women that stepped up and was out front carrying the torch 
the men were just so afraid when they're in a room, they try to act like they can do all these things. But when it came to being, the, you know, standing out and being the voice at the facility, the women stepped up in a mighty way. And I'm very proud of working with the women that I've had an opportunity to work with because they showed so much courage. Eric, I want to come back to you for a moment because we've profiled here on this seg- on this on this show program. We've talked about efforts with the Apple stores and, of course, with Starbucks. And we all know that, of course, we all know about Amazon. So we're seeing even a younger generation of folks. And because I think the the labor, the union organizers that we interviewed, I think, for Starbucks might have been 21 or 22. So when you see that this is a, young, a younger generation also taking lessons from folks like Ms. Butler and also mm-hmm. using the power of employees but also, but look, when you go up against some of the big the big names here, you're talking about Apple, you know, Starbucks, Amazon. What are you noticing about a newer generation of activists, organizers, labor organizers and activists? Is there a common thread that you're noticing with this particular generation? Yeah, and it's exciting. So I think, you know, certainly at Starbucks, we, we're seeing like younger uh, workers and, and many who are coming up in, I guess, Gen Z or millennials. Uh, and um, but it's not just them. I mean, workers from from many different age groups are kind of standing up to say enough is enough. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the uh, inequities and uh, really tough conditions that people operated in were just exposed in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, you add the pressures of potentially getting sick with this idea that we're supposed to be, you know, these workers are supposed to be essential, Mm -hmm. but not actually being treated essential as essential uh, people in the economy. You know, you end up with a situation that that turns into an exploding time bomb, a long overdue moment where people are like, I'm not gonna do this anymore. And I think that uh, for me, I'm really excited about it for a couple of reasons. Um, First things first is like, you know, one of the big premises in our book is that uh, we need to expand the way we think about organizing collective bargaining mm-hmm. and negotiating based on the way employment and economic relationships work today. And, you know, Amazon, Apple, Starbucks, these global brands didn't exist in 1935 when the National Labor Relations Act was passed. And so we really need to start thinking about, like, how we would set up negotiations in a new context. You talk about the seven pillars of bargaining for the common good. Ms. Butler, mm-hmm. I want to bring you back in the conversation. When you think back to when you first started and negotiating for your, you know, or collective bargaining, what have you learned that you wouldn't, you definitely wouldn't do then if you knew now? What you, what you know now that you wouldn't have done back then? Uh, that's, I mean, just so many things, just, uh, it's really all about the approach when when you're dealing with the company and the ass that we have. And just, I feel like you gotta be willing, you can't have all of these outlandish wishes and it taking it to the core of what's in the best interest of the workers. We know mm-hmm. they care about the health, their health and safety while they're on the job. Everybody's entitled to healthcare. You know, these are the things that we've got to stay at the table and keep pushing for because these companies make billions of dollars. They don't want to share it with the people. And so we got, that's what we need to keep our foot on. There is a bullet point in here where you all talk about engaging community allies as partners in issues and development in the bargaining campaign. Erica, take that a little further. Uh, Who are some of the, I mean, often we hear about some of the, 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 I guess the common, the NAACP or the ACLU, we hear about some common organization, but when you talk about engage the community, what are you all talking about here? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's not even that complicated. Uh, so so here's the big surprise reveal um, that everyone actually knew, which is that workers are whole people. And when you look at an individual at a work site, they, you can identify what church they go to, what uh, soccer team their kids or grandkids play for, you know, like you can identify whole people. And so, you know, one of the examples of the bargaining for the common good strategy, which is really just like a modern version of social movement unionism, which, mm-hmm. you know, the the auto workers back in the 30s 
tried this strategy as well. And they just didn't call it that. But they tried to negotiate over the price of cars in addition to the wages because mm-hmm. people who made them should be able to afford to buy them. And uh, that was radical and ended up uh, getting curved to where they could, no, you just focus on wages. Well, you know, workers today are trying to push back on that. And the, the example we give in the book is with the uh, teachers in the Twin Cities in, in Minnesota, where they didn't just bring parents in or students in as allies once they had already figured out what they were negotiating over, they worked with them over the course of many years, building a set of uh, issues that they wanted to talk about, issues that the parents felt invested in. And so when they began to have trouble at the table in negotiations, it wasn't hard to make an ask of parents to support them, even though it was one of the first big blizzards of that year. It wasn't hard to make an ask of parents to to come out with them on the picket lines because they had skin in the game. They had something to to win out of it as well. Ms. Butler, are there golden nuggets that you offer to this new generation of, of labor activists and organizers that you stress that they should know? Stay true to who they are and always be relatable. People can pick up on when you're not being real or not. Just be yourself. And that's what's going to draw people in and get them to trust you because they see that you are real. And you have to be open to say, hey, I got kids. I've been in the workforce as well. So I kind of understand your struggle. So be relatable. Erica, you you all in this book that some I had a friend of mine said this book was like a, a, a how to a hand guide for this this newer generation who should read this book. Oh, I hope everybody. We tried to write it like a choose your own adventure, right? So if you have no experience whatsoever with unions or the labor movement, uh, then you can read part one and get completely caught up. And if you're trying to do something new or you you are operating in a context or at a company or even in a living situation that's different than what might have existed before, then part two is going to be the section where you see what other working people have done. And then, of course, part three really starts to project into the future. You know, we've heard a lot in the past few years about the future of work and mm-hmm. the future of workers. And my co-author, Sarita Gupta, has done a lot of writing and thinking on this. But to really not think about it as something that is inevitable and is going to happen to us, but to think about it as something that we need to be in relationship with and being a part of governing over how it how it plays out. Now, I want to ask both of you this before we, we let you go. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how the pandemic, and we touched on a little bit how the pandemic has sort of pulled the curtain back on not only how we all work in this nation, but some of the environments and under the conditions and what it says about what needs to change and what lessons are going to be learned from this pandemic. So, Ms. Butler, I'll start with you as it relates to the future of workers' health and safety. What have you? What do you hope people take away from what the pandemic has revealed? I, I love that the pandemic happened in this regard because there, this is the worker rising movement that you see right now with the Amazons and the Apple, the, the, the essential workers. Uh, it's like some, you sometimes you don't really realize that you are being oppressed at work, but the pandemic, it, it pulled the shade off of that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I love what's happening. I, I mean, I'm just proud of these young people because they're advocating for themselves and their coworkers. And I, I see that this movement is not going to stop. It's going to continue to progress. Well, let me ask you this, Ms. Butler. How do you define then those, is it the bigger picture with those small victories? And is it always you should have a, a big end game in terms of what you all want, what workers want? Can you... Is there satisfaction in these small victories along the way? I mean, you talked about just getting a bathroom. Obviously, hopefully we're beyond that. But just a bigger picture, how should organizers now view, you know, success or effectiveness in what they're doing? I think the small victories matter. We have to continue to uplift the small victories when we're working on these huge campaigns so that those folks can see it's attainable. Mm-hmm. This group of people were able to be successful, and you can too, if you guys stick together and just stay with it. Erica, in terms of the pandemic, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, look, there is a study that came out of Connecticut that showed that at assisted living facilities where seniors were, were in care, that there were 30% less COVID deaths where those facilities had union representation. And we're talking about uh, a job force that is majority black women. 
So if that doesn't convince you that having a union is actually good for all of us, that being able to collectively negotiate conditions and prepare for the crisis before it comes is better for all of us, I'm not sure what will, that this is actually fundamental to democracy. And I wanna just wrap with like something that also touches on one of your earlier questions, Rose, which is, which is this question of race, right? Mm -hmm. Race and gender. Right? The majority of black people in this country still live in the South. And so it, it's not surprising that that's where some of the most repressive laws are. That is, that is just stating a, a fact. And that the rise of the industry of union busting that began to be trained and developed in various business schools happened in the 1970s when more women, and particularly women of color, were joining the job force. And so when we're talking about trying to combat this and get back to this aspiration, this promise of building a multiracial democracy, it's not just a matter of doing what's morally right mm -hmm. to confront gender discrimination and race. It's a matter of strategy. It's a matter of winning. It's a matter of not doing so will ultimately guarantee our defeat. And so we don't build this power and we don't build democracy by, by just organizing people who already have access. Uh, we have to build it with people who don't have access, maybe never had access, and have the imagination to build something new, like the workers that you described at Starbucks and mm -hmm. Trader Joe's and Apple. And that the so what of all of this is both so that we can build a democracy that really is worth fighting for, and God forbid, as my co-author often says, uh, so that we can find dignity and joy in our everyday lives. The book is titled The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century, co-authored by Erica Smiley and Sarita Gupta. Labor organizer and activist Sancioni Butler is featured. Ms. Butler, Erica, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate a good conversation. It's a good book. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's 2012. Then U.S. Senator John McCain addressed the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe Parliamentary Assembly. You say why? Well, to advocate for a global resolution regarding the Magnitsky rule of law. Obviously, I support this resolution on rule of law in Russia and the case of Sergei Magnitsky. What happened to him was a horrific crime but it's also an example, an extreme example, to be sure, but an example nonetheless of the pervasive and systemic corruption in the Russian government. To this day, no one, not one person, has ever been held responsible for Sergei's death. Now, since 2012, there's been some developments regarding Magnitsky. He was a 37-year-old tax law expert who died in a Moscow prison on November 16, 2009. We'll get to that in just a moment. His death will be significant, as it's been the core of my next guest's advocacy for the last few years. But as always, there's a backstory. He was the CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. William Browder once was the largest foreign investor in Russia. So, as he began to investigate and soon uncover a $230 million tax fraud scheme, well... He will become a problem for Vladimir Putin's regime. Now, we spoke back in 2018, but he returns to Atlanta. He'll be speaking at the Atlanta History Center tonight. By the way, folks, it's sold out. But guess what? He's with me now to talk about his continuing global journey as a human rights advocate. His new book, Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Bill Browder, welcome back. Good to see you. Great to be here. Before we get into freezing order, let's start by going back for our listeners who may not be familiar with the backstory here, because Sergei Magnitsky was more than just your attorney. He was a friend. He was a friend. He was my lawyer, um, and um, he was working for me. I was in Russia. I had moved to Russia after the Soviet Union fell apart. I set up an investment business there. Um, it grew to become the largest investment fund in the country. I um, discovered huge corruption in the companies I was investing in. To try to stop the corruption, I exposed it. Uh, in doing so, uh, with the newspapers, with Wall Street Journal, New York Times, etc., and in doing so, I created a lot of enemies, as you can imagine. And um, I was expelled from the country in 2005. Mm -hmm. My offices were raided in 2007. They seized all of our documents. 
And I hired Sergey to try to figure out what they were going to do with all these documents. And he discovered that they used all the documents they seized um, to orchestrate a, a very complicated uh, $230 million tax rebate fraud. Mm-hmm. Basically, taxes that we paid in the previous year were then stolen by a bunch of corrupt officials. This was not a crime against me, per se. It was a crime against the Russian government using mm-hmm. my, my documents. Sergei discovered this, and as a Russian citizen, as a Russian patriot, he uh, exposed it. He testified against the officials involved, and he was subsequently arrested, uh, tortured for 358 days, and murdered in Russian police custody at, at the, uh, in, on November 16, 2009, at the age of 37. His murder was, uh, in, a, in a certain way, my fault. If, if he hadn't been working for me, he'd still be alive today. You told me that last time. You you put that blame on yourself. Well, I, it's true. I mean, basically, he was uh, you know he was brave enough to do the right thing, and for doing the right thing, he paid the ultimate price. And and I've never been able to um, get over that. And um, and the only way that I can I can feel any any release at all from this terrible guilt is to do something to get justice for him. And that's why for the last 13 years since he was murdered, um, I've given up my life as a businessman and I've mm-hmm. focused full time on going after the people who killed him. And 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 that's led to all sorts of other crazy yeah. and horrible things. We're going to get to that in a moment because in that clip we played within U.S. Senator John McCain from 2012. And at that time, as y'all saw, a lot of folks saw it, there was no justice for Sergey, but as you see it, there, there was some developments. I think in 2019. Tell us just what happened then. Well, there's there. The, so in, in, let's back up a little bit. Sure. In, in 2012, um, John McCain um, uh, and Senator Benjamin Cardin, Republican and Democrat, passed the Magnitsky Act. Mm-hmm. The Magnitsky Act uh, freezes the assets and bans the visas of the people who killed Sergey and the people who do similar types of things. And so that was the first sort of. For the first, the first tangible thing mm-hmm. we got in in uh, 2017, we got the um, Canadians to pass the Magnitsky Act. Mm-hmm. 2018, British government passed the Magnitsky Act. In um, in 2020, the EU passed the Magnitsky Act. 2021, the Australians. So there's many countries mm-hmm. now who have sanctioned the people who killed Sergey. How do you gauge though the the effectiveness of that? Are you able to say? Can you put a dollar amount on what this might have? cost these folks these these russian executives or whomever or even putin how do you well well the the main thing that i know so so the answer is no it's hard to put a dollar amount yeah. on this and and i think the numbers for the magnitsky killers are pretty de minimis but but what it does do is um it creates panic among mm-hmm. the elite in russia because they keep their money all over the world and the moment you get added to the magnitsky list you become effectively a non-person in the financial world and we, I, I know this has is, is been highly effective with one, because of one specific thing, which is mm-hmm. that after the Magnitsky Act was passed, Vladimir Putin went out of his mind. It, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families mm-hmm. in, in, in direct retaliation. Um, he made it his single largest foreign policy priority um, to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And then he started chasing me all around the world to try to have me arrested brought back to Russia so he could kill me. They've, they've issued eight Interpol arrest warrants against me. Mm-hmm. They've tried to have me, had me extradited from London on numerous occasions. Um, he even, in 2018 at the Helsinki summit, asked Trump to hand me over. And Trump said uh, he thought that was an incredible, incredibly good idea. And, and so we know that the Magnitsky Act is, is, is good and effective just based on the reaction of the person we're targeting. It's like a, in a game of battleship. You know, we got a direct hit, and he let us know that. You said that he has been at the hand of trying to, if not kill you, silence you, get you arrested. But at the core of what you're wanting to do for your friend, Sergey, and you have a family as well, and I want to shift for a moment, talk about your family, do you feel like you're putting them at danger as well? Well, I at think, risk. <clears throat> I, I think that, that you have to... Um, You've got to take a stand sometimes. And mm-hmm. um, so some people say, you know, Bill, why don't you just put it all away and, and um, don't say anything about all this? Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, let it go. And first of all, I can't let it go. 
because you know, it would poison me from the inside. But secondly, I don't think it's the safest thing to let it go. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's safer to stand out and scream from the rooftops because the people who they kill, and they kill a lot, are the people that nobody cares about. And people care about me. They care about what I'm doing, um, politicians and and media and friends and acquaintances all over the world care about this. And so I think that, that in a certain way, it's actually the safest thing I could be doing for myself and for my family to be hugely outspoken about this thing. It may be counterintuitive. A lot of people say that. But I, I, I think, you know, I've survived so far for 13 mm-hmm. years by being you know, screaming and screaming about this injustice from everywhere I could scream. In your first book, Red Notice, where you're introducing the readers into uh, <laughs> the very intricate part of what you dealt with living and being in Russia. And now with Freezing Order, I want to back up a little bit because I uh, imagine after you finished Red Notice, you knew immediately there was more. And since so much has happened even since that was published, but <clears throat> so you knew there was a second... So Red Notice was published um, in 2015, but it finishes in 2012 mm-hmm. when the Magnitsky Act was passed, which felt like a, a huge triumph. It was a huge triumph to get a, a U.S. law passed <laughs> named after a, a murdered Russian lawyer. is just, I mean, you know, the chances of that are like smaller than winning the lottery. But it, it, it got passed and it got passed because the story, the Magnitsky story was just so unbelievably biblical and compelling that no, nobody could, could sort of walk away from it. And I thought that that was the triumph, that was the climax, that that was the end of the story. But then, after the Magnitsky Act was passed, Putin went on this retaliatory rampage, Mm -hmm. which escalated. We got more Magnitsky Acts passed. We then started finding the money that that Putin and others had stolen connected to the murder of Magnitsky, which led to more craziness. And, And by the time we got to 2018, when Trump was being asked to hand me over, it was just so obvious that, mm-hmm. that, that, that I had to tell. There was more of a story to tell. Uh, the, the stuff that happened since then is probably crazier than stuff in the first book, and that's what led to freezing order. I have a, a, a question from a listener who wants to know, well, Rose, did they ever find anyone guilty of his attorney's murder? Not in Russia. Okay. So in Russia, Putin circled the wagons. He, um, he, he personally got involved in exonerating every single official involved. And the, and the evidence is completely definitive. It's black and white. Um, the European Court for Human Rights, which is the, this court in, in Strasbourg, found the Russian government guilty of murdering him, but that they didn't find any individuals guilty because that, they don't do that. And so in Russia, there's been no justice whatsoever. And, and that's the reason why I have to continue fighting for justice outside of Russia. I have another listener that, that writes about, is there anything, does it prove that there's anything good coming out of the sanctions against Russia? The, the answer is yes. So for, first of all, the Magnitsky case is mm-hmm. what's led to the sanctions sure. that we're going after right now. And and often people ask me, well, what, what, why are we sanctioning oligarchs? And, and the reason we're sanctioning oligarchs is that they're the ones who are holding Putin's offshore money for him. Mm-hmm. When we sanctioned Putin the week after the war started, um, it was really satisfying to see his name on a sanctions list, but I knew and everybody in the government knew that, that he doesn't hold any money in his own name. The people who hold the money are the oligarchs. And so if we want to stop Putin from having the financial resources to continue murdering people in Ukraine, we got to cut him off in all different places. And the sanctions against the Russian oligarchs are extremely strong, very powerful, and they, they do work. Now, people say, well, why hasn't he even pulled out of Ukraine? Well, the answer is, it. you know, he's a stubborn... <laughs> SOB, he's not going to just um, uh, pull out the moment that, that he's feeling pain. He, he's a guy who escalates and fights to the death. And, and he, has, he has some money still, and he's going to use that money until either the Ukrainians win or we completely starve him of the financial resources or both. And, and they're, they're, they're both interlinked. If you're just joining the program, my guest is Bill Browder, and we're talking about Freezing Orders, new book, The True Story of Money, Laundering, Murder, and Surviving Vladimir Putin's Wrath. I want to go back to when you talk about there's still so much more, there was so much more to tell. But also in Freezing Order, it's a little bit more personal in terms of what these last few years have been like for you as an advocate for human rights violators. And and earlier when I asked you about you feeling blame for Sergei's murder. But you've been on this journey, and and I'd imagine it's unlike anything you could have imagined. But from the first time you were on this program a few years ago and you were writing Red Notice, what have you discovered about yourself, Bill? 
Well, if you had met me uh, 35 years ago when I was uh, uh, an MBA student at Stanford, um, you would have thought I was the least likely person to ever become a human rights activist. I was uh, you know, focused on money and Wall Street and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, nobody ever knows how, what the, what's going to happen in life, and life deals you cards. And life dealt me some really awful cards. And, but in a certain way, those cards have led me towards a, a, a path, a mission, I, I, I should say, of justice, which doesn't just include Sergei Magnitsky. It, mm-hmm. it also includes other victims. So, you know, when people, when the Magnitsky Act was passed, people from, uh, from China, the Jing, if these Uyghur, Uyghurs from Xinjiang started coming to me and saying, can we sanction the people who are setting up the concentration camps for our relatives? Mm-hmm. Uh, how could I walk away from that? And so I, I got involved in that. And, and um, many other victims have started coming to me with their, with their issues. And so in a certain way, um, you know, this tragedy has led to to something good for the world and for me personally, that, you know, this fighting for justice is, is very satisfying. And it does give me it does give me something really tangible to hold on to, which is, um, you know, uh, tr- trying to try trying to right some terrible wrongs. And when, when even marginally writing these wrongs is 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 something that, you know, I, I, I can feel good about. Does writing these wrongs also go beyond just Russia? Absolutely, definitely. So the the um, I've been very involved in in uh, uh, in the the situation with the Uyghurs, uh, also in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. I was approached by the um, the daughters of the uh, uh, of the hero from Hotel Rwanda. You remember that movie, mm-hmm. Hotel Rwanda? Absolutely. Uh, Paul Recessa Bajina um, was the hero from the, from he was the guy who had the hotel mm-hmm. who who um, sa- who saved two thousand people's lives from from being butchered during the Rwandan genocide. Anyways, he left Rwanda and he started speaking up against Paul Kagame, who is the um, president of Rwanda. Paul Kagame is is a, a character very similar to Vladimir Putin. He he wins his elections with 99 percent of the vote and lots of his enemies seem to die all sorts of, all over the world. And 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 uh, Paul Recessa Bajina, the, the Hotel Rwanda guy, started criticizing him. And 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 Kagame's got such thin skin that he's somehow able to kidnap Kagame, bring him back to Rwanda, and put him in jail for the rest of his life. And and so I've been helping his daughters, who, by the way, were orphans that he adopted mm-hmm. when they were, like, when their parents were killed in the genocide. And they're, they've, they're now on a campaign to get their father out of prison and use the Magnitsky Act, and, and I'm, I'm you know, working with them any way I can to try to help them. Often, as you know, on a global standpoint, and sometimes even here in the U.S., let's be really clear, when you have activists for human rights or whatever the cause is, and you have politics, often that intersection can be somewhat um, contentious. When you look at the United States' role in all of this as it relates to Russia and then obviously right now with Ukraine, is there any criticism of this, of our nation, as we've handled all of this and in our relationship with Russia, that you want to talk about, that you feel is, is necessary to... I, I mean, how long? How, how long is the show? I mean, you know, we. <laughs> I mean, bas- basically, for the last twenty-two years, we have given Vladimir Putin a pass. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of terrible things that are easily identifiable. He invaded Georgia in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. He took uh, took over Crimea and eastern Ukraine in two thousand fourteen. He carpet bombed Syrians. He poisoned people in Salisbury, England, and many, many other things across the world. And every time he did this. We always tried to get along with him. We always tried to appease him. We never sanctioned him. And and this is, I, I'm critical of multiple administrations on both sides of the aisle. Everybody mishandled Vladimir Putin. And because of that, he's sitting there. And, and it's not even an American, just an American thing, the Germans, et cetera. Mm-hmm. He's, he's sitting there thinking nothing's going to happen if he goes into Ukraine. And if we had been tough with him back 15 years ago, we might 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 have been looking at a whole different scenario right now. And so, yeah, I'm highly critical of this government, the German government, the European Union, British government, for letting Putin get away with it for so long before we finally stepped in. What have you noticed about yourselves and t- yourself in terms of writing? Because as I told you before we came on air, when I talked to authors, usually that second book can be a little bit uh daunting based on what the first one did the first one was a new york times bestseller here you come back again folks saying what are you going to tell me this time bill broader that you didn't tell me the first time oh my god it's horrible you know so every every time anyone complimented me on my first book and and my first book is good i mean it's objectively people come constantly patting me on the back saying great book great book well not well let's be clear not many people 
can write a book that talks about how Vladimir Putin wants to kill them <laughs> and, you know. It, 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 but, but it's also entertaining. And, and, well, yeah. guess what? And I read it. <laughs> and I made it entertaining. I, I, you know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, I kind of hid the vegetables in the dessert. I, I, I wrote a thriller with some really important messages in it. But after the first book, I, I, every time someone complimented me, I thought, oh, God, how am I going to ever repeat the success in a second book? And I spent three years writing the second book, four hours a day. And that haunted me every, because I, the last thing I wanted was to write a second book that everyone thought, oh, you know, second, first book was good and the second one was, was not so much. And so I just killed myself to write the second book. And, I, and I'm so pleased it, it hit the New York Times, number one on the New York Times bestseller list in the first week and it stayed there for a number of weeks afterwards. I mean, it's such a relief after all that work I put into it not, not to have a dud the second time around. But, Bill, I want to go back to because – Again, at the core of this, your friend, your attorney, Sergey, was murdered. First of all, how is his family doing? Well, you know, no. How does anyone ever fully recover sure. from that? No, nobody does. It's 13 years later. His son, who was eight years old at the time, is now, you know, a proper young man. He's going to university in America. He's doing well. Um, his mother is, you know, um, doing as well as she could, given the, the horrible trauma. I, I take care of them. Um, I look after them the way that Sergey would have financially and and um you know they're they're doing well they're safe they're far away from all this terrible stuff and and they're trying to be, rebuild their lives as best they can under a terrible set of circumstances other than russia is there any other place that you just cannot go <laughs> well um th- that's about 90 98 yeah. percent of the world so ba- yeah. basically so i'm a fugitive from justice vladimir putin well, who's who's justice from from Vladimir Putin's okay. justice? <laughs> That's, I'm, okay. I'm a fugitive from injustice. Vladimir Putin has sentenced me twice um, in in absentia to 18 years in prison. They've come after me every way possible, and basically, I can't travel to most countries mm-hmm. that don't have a rule of law. Sure, and that I, that, which means that I can travel to about 10 countries in the world. The book is Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Bill Broder is the author. Again, he's in conversation at the Atlanta History Center, but it's sold out, folks, so we brought him here to you. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like or any of our other podcasts. They're pretty good. Stay tuned to WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.